Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, everyone. Today, I am chatting with Ian Vorster, and we're about to learn how he upskilled his way from an 85K position to a 145K position. In doing this, he's paid off his debt and now routinely saves and invests. I can't wait to take all the nuggets of wisdom he has learned along the way and hopefully get myself a lot closer to financial freedom as well, because coming up to the Christmas season, I'm not sure when you guys will be listening to this, but it definitely doesn't feel like I'm that close to it. So my name's Sarah Kelsey, and you're listening to My Millennial Money. Ian, thank you so much for being here. How do you feel? Hey, no worries. (laughs) Like a lot of weight has been lifted. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about that. Like what was the weight that you had initially and um, with your finances and what feels, what has happened now as a result of that weight being lifted? Uh, It's it's freed up like so much of my financial income. I was used to just constantly working, paying off bills, living paycheck to paycheck and pretty much struggling. I think a lot of people these days would feel the same, like especially with the rate increases, just feel like you're drowning, like you can't do anything and you're earning all this money, but you can't do anything with it Mm. besides pay bills. That's kind of how I was feeling for the past six to eight years. Mm. Yeah, it's a horrible feeling. And I think so many of us can relate to it where, you know, it feels like so much money comes into your bank account or enough to cover everything. But then you're often living in this position where suddenly you've got $10 in your grocery account and you're like, how did this even happen? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so tell me a little bit more about what you were doing before the position you're in now. And when you kind of decided that it was time to change, start upskilling and grow your finances? Probably my current partner that I'm with now. When I was with my ex, the the money was controlled. What I earned was kind of not paying off any of my debts. It was kind of paying off my ex's debts. So any sort of income that I had was never for me. So I wasn't saving any of it. I was on a very small salary as a chef, probably about Fifty to 60000 a year. And even after that, you know, my normal nine-to-five job, I would still be doing side jobs and earning cash on the side. And s- still that wasn't really paying off anything. And if anything, I was living really recklessly, spending whatever like extra money I had on, on myself, on stupid high-priced items. So I never really saved or anything like that. Uh, And then meeting my current partner now, meeting someone that actually had savings and had really a financial goal, just sort of flicked something. And then together we kind of just started doing a, like a payment plan sort of thing, paying off debts, getting rid of the smaller debts and yeah, saving away in high interest savings accounts and really actually investing and thinking about my future. So while you were a chef, it seems like you had a partner who was quite controlling over your money and yeah yeah very yeah, it was a very very bad situation um even like when we separate well, after we separated like super that was that was on the table that was um 
I actually had my super drained over COVID and the $20,000 that was accessed between the two financial years that was, that was access to pay off um, my ex's debts. So I guess I kind of really did hit like rock bottom. I didn't have any savings. Uh, I was in a, a very bad paying job. Um, didn't have any super. I think I had about $7,000 in my super left and I still had extremely like high debts. Um, I think I was probably in about $70,000 of like unsecured debt. And that's not including the the mortgage that we had together. So I'd say I was kind of in a position where if something didn't happen and something drastic didn't happen, then I would probably have lost it all. Mm, I'm sure that felt like, I mean, an extremely claustrophobic emotionally and practically around your situation to be in like, were you aware that that was happening at the time or is this something you've kind of reflected on more so with hindsight? No, this is, this is something that like you think when you're in a relationship, you're kind of doing things together and you don't see this as a controlling sort of behavior, handing over your paycheck kind of thing. It's, it seems like you're just, you know, you're just paying the house bills. But yeah, at the time I didn't really realize that that's something that it's a major part of someone's life that's being controlled. Uh, and it's pretty much your freedom, your financial freedom. I had to rely on someone for eight years. So I was kind of stuck in that that relationship where you think you can't leave or mm. you think you've got all your assets tied into one person that you can't ever separate. So I think, yeah, I didn't, I didn't see it at the time and it did take pretty heated or like a pretty bad separation to kind of wake me up to that. Did you going into that relationship and I suppose growing up as well have a high level of financial literacy or what did you typically understand about money before then? Um, I'd say growing up with, with money, like it wasn't, it wasn't really a concern with me. I mean, I'd say I was quite privileged in how I was brought up. We're immigrants. So we came over from Zimbabwe about 17 years ago. My parents, I think they, they struggled, but they never really showed that they were struggling. It never really affected us as like kids growing up. Uh, we still got like pocket money and still you know, had clothes. But yeah, I didn't really feel the effects. So I think I was a little bit naive moving out, getting a mortgage with my partner at the time. Didn't, yeah, it didn't really hit me how hard it really is. Mm. So yeah, I would say yeah, growing up, money wasn't really something that I was thinking of because I seemed to kind of always get not what I wanted, but there was always a way that I could, you know, buy something or my parents would buy something for me. It wasn't something like some families probably struggle and it's it's a no straight away. You, you'll never be able to get that or mm. um, buying a first car won't be brand new. It's, it'll be secondhand or a handy down. Mm, yeah, it seemed like things always felt like they were possible and probably there maybe was also a level of trust you had around money already and, and how it could be available in someone's life and I think it can be really difficult when you enter into new relationships or any relationships whether they're like a romantic partner or a friendship and if someone seems to be more that money-minded person or like they are happy to take over that financial side it is very easy to naturally trust that someone will be able to manage that and handle that and in a way that benefits you both but of course it's also so easy for that to not be the case as well yeah definitely yeah. Yeah, and I think in, in my situation, my my ex at the time had a very big income. We were easy, we were able to buy things on credit and buy these expensive cars and purchase the house that I have now. 
and we never really thought about what's going to happen down the future, which I wish I did like myself and start saving some of my money in case something were to happen because everybody thinks that the relationship that they're in, that's the one or that's who they're going to be with forever. And that's certainly what I thought. So when all these things were happening, I thought that this is kind of for the greater good. We're paying off your debt. That's so you freeze up your bigger income, not paying off our debt together. So I think, yeah, that's that's kind of where my slip up was. And that's kind of like the lesson that I like to tell people now is when you're in a relationship, like, yes, they may seem like the one, but just don't jump in like, together. It's like, Don't tie all of your assets up with one person. Or if you do have some, have a way to get out of it, like have something in place, like a contract or. Yeah, protection of your assets generally is such an important topic and concept that I don't think gets spoken about maybe as much as it should because relationships, I, I suppose, are also quite an intimate, personal conversation. And it can be quite hard to open up those conversations with people when someone is so convinced, of course, naturally, that that is going to be their person and that is them for the rest of their life. But also, as you've experienced, as unfortunately so many other people have experienced as well, sometimes that's not the case. And then you end up having to go through so much pain, you know, in every way afterwards to sort out and and find what's yours again. Yeah, and I think when you're going through a separation, it's hard enough as is. Mm. Like if you think that was the one and now you're starting to divide things up especially if they get like narky with things and they want to fight you over assets that may be yours, but they want it more than you. Mm. Having something in place would have just been so much easier to say, I get this car or we'll sell the house and get 50-50. I think it's just, it's added pressure if you don't have these things in place. And I think in the end, some people like myself, I was willing to kind of just give it all away because that was just me. I was over it. I was I just want it out. But I think if I didn't fight and, you know, really go after what I believe that was, I was entitled to or what I was owed, yeah, I would have lost it all. And I think that's probably something that a lot of people might might do, like cave in and just let the, the other person, like the, the bigger person sort of take it all. How did that then impact the next relationship you got into? Like what were some things you thought about at the start of that relationship when it came to your finances? I would say it it didn't really affect this relationship as much because the current partner that I'm with now is is very my money is my money, your money is your money, but we do things together. We have savings that are separate and I think it's it's a good thing because if we go out on dates or dinners and stuff like that the the money will be split, but it's there's a, a an understanding and appreciation that I've worked hard for my money, you've worked hard for your money, and that's that's yours. That's what not this. We're in a de facto relationship. If we separate, half of yours is mine. That sort of thing. I was probably still blind going into this relationship, and my current partner is kind of the one that like woke me up to things of like just because you're in a relationship doesn't mean they get. It they get that he's kind of like open my eyes that there is you've worked hard for what you have got so that's yours enjoy it and feel better about yourself and your situation because you've worked hard to get that Mm. so i would say it's probably affected it in a good way but yeah i would think if i was in a 
relationship with someone else, I would never have really picked up these signs or have really realized that I was in like a, a, an abusive relationship with money. So then how did those things that your current partner taught you change the way that you manage your money now? You spoke about having like money set aside for yourself. Was an emergency fund a part of that or the way that you invested, for example? Yeah, so I never actually had multiple accounts. I just, I would get paid into one account and I would get my bills taken from that one account. So there was never really a pattern that I could follow or pick up on anything being overcharged or something that I've forgotten about, like a subscription from months ago that I forgot to cancel because there was so much money going in and so much money coming out. I was just naive to it all. I just thought my bills are being paid. Great. I never really looked into or questioned these weird purchases or anything like that. So now currently um, my partner was like, well, you need to have a separate account for an emergency that you don't touch. You, and you need to have a separate bills account where things come out and you need a, like an account just for yourself that you, that you use to spend. So yeah, we kind of set all these accounts up. So now I have like my emergency fund, a fund just for car, like the bills account, things are all now like strategically planned out. And I know how much is coming out on this day and how much is going in. So yeah, it's just all really all about like the simple things like tracking it. Yeah, that seems to be a big part of growing your financial capability, I suppose, is actually just having an awareness of where what's coming in, what's going out, like where things are actually going. Yeah, because I think that was probably my biggest thing is at one point when I was going through my accounts, I had three subscriptions to Spotify, all that I was paying. Just I would forget a password, think that it would run out or, yeah, and I would just create a new account. And I just had three Spotify accounts, all that were being debited, eleven ninety nine a month. And because it's all in one account, you just don't think. And it's just so much to see. It was yeah, too confusing. So, yeah, now that I have a bills account, I can see Spotify once a month. That's good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A lot easier to track. And then so with that opening multiple accounts, did you then create some kind of system for yourself, like a budgeting system, or was that kind of enough of a first step to get you on um, the right track? Yeah, so it was primarily about like creating the, the system just so that I know where my money is and like where it's going. And then from that, it's easier to see what I have left over to then allocate to myself and pay down bigger debts. And yeah, it kind of follows the Glenn James money plan, really. Not as in-depth, but it's, it's, yeah, I'd highly recommend people do that for themselves. Work out where you're at and where you want to go. And using a money plan like that is something that you can use and follow to get yourself to that that spot. Because when I did start paying debts down, I wasn't on this huge salary. I was still earning um, like 70000 a year, which for some people that's a lot. But for me and all my debts, I had really outgrown all my debts with the separation. So, yeah, my I had a lot of debt for what I, for what I was earning. So I really did need a, a money plan. It is so valuable and we'll put it down in the show notes for anyone interested in checking it out as, as well. For you, what were some of those main standout maybe lessons or points that you took and you think about now? You know, I feel like with my finances, I often look at it in terms of 
foundations. And I know that Glenn talks about something very similar with her financial house and, and really setting solid foundations and one of them being an emergency fund, for example, and paying off debt. And I constantly think about those things when I'm needing to reset my finances a little. So for you, do you have any of those lessons that constantly stay in your head around how you manage your money? I'll definitely just say figure out where where you're at is probably the main thing for me is learning like where your income is and like where it's all going because I, it can be very hard to keep track of. When I had all my debts going all over the place, if I actually stopped and calculated all the debt I have leaving my account, I was actually I actually needed to earn more. Like I didn't have enough money to pay my debts, and and that's something that I think yeah, if you don't know where you're currently sitting at with debt, you don't you don't know what you need to change. Like you don't know if you need to cancel these small subscriptions just to cover your debts or ask for that pay rise or you need to get rid of your car you're paying too much for your car and yeah unless you have this understanding of how much debt you are actually in because i know for myself when i was in debt i was too scared to talk about debt i would avoid it and it was just kind of like this shame this embarrassment of you're a grown person but you have you have so much your your money's not your, your own you give all of your money away to someone else to the bank or to these store credit like accounts. Mm. So I'm just, yeah, I would just say be, be honest and yeah, be honest about what your debt is. And it's hard to talk about. It's something that I avoided for a very long time. It's something that I got good at avoiding the question of debt or where my money was going and say, so, yeah, just really be honest with yourself and figure out where you're at. And if you need to ask for help, it's not something you should really be ashamed of because it's better to ask for help and maybe borrow a little bit of money from family, going to these debt consolidation companies that would really affect uh, your future for a long time. I say if I if I didn't ask for help or if people didn't realize that I was in debt, this, that probably would have been somewhere that I was, and I don't think it would have ended up uh, ended up very well. I think it's a really important lesson. I'm keen to chat more about those conversations and also how to move on from those feelings of shame and guilt that can come with talking about debt. But we're going to stop for a quick ad break and we'll be back in a second. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. All right, welcome back, everyone. Uh, we'd finish off the conversation with Ian before the ad break talking about debt and especially the shame and the guilt that can come around those conversations. So, Ian, do you remember one of the first conversations you might have had about debt after realizing you needed to make a change? Like, do you remember feeling sweaty and uncomfortable and not wanting to talk about it and actually just getting through it and it being okay? Yeah, definitely. It would be just something that I would just dance around the question a lot. You've just been paid. Where is all this money? You're kind of like, uh, I've got to pay this. I had to pay this bill or I had to do that. Uh, remember, I owed this person that money. It was always just trying to, yeah, not a straight answer, just trying to pretty much confuse the person that's asking about your, your finances. I never really wanted to say uh, I had a zip pay that was a lot, like that was way overdue, or I had uh, house rates that I hadn't paid and were overdue as well, or my mortgage that was overdue. I never wanted to really admit that I was like lacking with paying my bills or really that anything was overdue. I couldn't remember a time that my bills were on time and I didn't know that some companies actually rewarded you for paying on time. So it was it was weird to me when I started to actually save money and was actually able to make payments on time. I swear asking for help has to be one of the hardest journeys that anyone goes through when it comes to anything in their life. Maybe it's money, maybe it's mental health, maybe it's... Um, it could be anything, honestly, but getting to a point where you need to ask for help can be a really hard point to get to. Do you think there's anything that on the other side of the conversation, the person talking to you about your debts and where your money's gone, do you think there's anything they could have said, done or acted like that would have helped? I think if, if really, if you're the person asking, just to understand that debt can be a very shameful thing for someone, especially if they're they're hiding it, they're putting on this facade that they kind of had have their life together or they're driving this nice car, they have a nice house. And if they are in debt, this is something that they're probably going to feel like they look silly, like, why did you buy that car if you can't afford it? Or why did you have that house? Why do you still have that house if you can't afford it? It's probably all the things that they're thinking inside that this is what everyone's going to be thinking of me if I come forward. So I think really letting the person know that you're willing to help and you're not going to be judgmental or laugh at the ridiculous purchases that they've made. I think that's something that can help somebody actually trust you and speak out because I know for me, I did some very stupid things, especially with banks that I was very shameful of saying in in that time, it's something that I really needed to do to survive really. But I was very shameful to to speak up and tell people these things. So I would just say, yeah, go in with an open mind, realize that their situation is probably very different to yours. And the fact that they're coming to you or feel comfortable enough to open up to you, that's something that you should really appreciate because they're turning to you for help. Yeah, definitely. It seems so often with these conversations, especially about money, I suppose, because they are so taboo and there is so much guilt and shame associated with money, hence why 
you know, there's so many people out there struggling to have these conversations and, and don't learn these things until they actually have to go through it. But when you are having those even casual and formal conversations about money, maybe you're not even talking about each other's situation. I think that lesson still applies and is really important to carry that empathy and that sympathy in those conversations because you truly don't know what that other person is experiencing behind the scenes. You know, maybe they are in so much debt and they just don't want to tell you or they are always buying things on afterpay and they know that they shouldn't, but they are. And like, you just have no idea what, what's really happening. And so any little comment or way of phrasing things could impact the way they feel and, and their ability to open up to you later on. Yeah, definitely. I want to talk about this debt that you had. So you said it was around 70K worth of debt that you ended up having. Was that right? Yeah, that was a mixture of my debt and my ex's debt. So when we first got together and we started earning extra money, we decided to kind of upgrade our cars. Um, So we traded in our cars and got brand new cars. We were going to only do that if our repayments were lower. But by the time we had, you know, gone and test drive these cars and sat in them and we didn't care if the payments were higher. So we just financed these two brand new cars and traded in the other cars and actually ended up paying more. So that kind of my $30,000 car at the time, I was now paying $48,000 for a car that wasn't even worth $48,000. That was a big chunk of it. Um, Then I had rates that were overdue. I had other bills, like smaller, like household bills. My mortgage, that was on hold because yeah, I couldn't meet the repayments for that. So I actually froze. It was just after COVID that I then froze the mortgage. I think a lot of people did that and I'm now seeing it wasn't a smart idea, but yeah, it got me through. And then a lot of the other things were just the store, afterpay, zip pay, had Klarna, had a lot of after store things and when they would bounce or just reject i would just go to the next one and that's kind of like they just all racked up so i think overall the car was the big thing that was the forty-eight thousand worth of that and then i had probably about twelve thousand worth of the store pay and then the rest that made up the, the 70 was the bills that were all entire like entwined with the house and there were some like personal loans that I had that were like taken out to buy kayaks and stuff like that. So not, none of it was really good debt. Although I don't think any of it was good debt besides, besides the house. Everything was just, was all over the place. And so leaving that relationship, did you have the same amount of debt um, to pay off or had you kind of worked out halved it or something like that? Um, no, so I had I had all of that that debt. There was another car that we had that was eighty thousand, eighty five thousand dollar car, and the repayments on that were astronomical. So I was kind of glad that I got stuck with this because the the fortnightly repayments of that car alone would have like I would not have been able to survive. So I kind of took the rest, you know, on the chin. There was. When we separated, it was kind of a quick thing. Like you grab, you take this car, or whatever. So nothing was really spoken about. But I think as things settled down, I was kind of glad that at the time I was furious that I didn't have this brand new car. We've literally just bought this brand new car together. But once things settled down, and I 
assess the situation. I was kind of glad that I was stuck with the lower payment, uh, the lesser debt. And really, I I saw the house as something that we've both like had worked hard to get. And towards the end of our relationship, like I was working three jobs to just to pay the mortgage because my ex wasn't working at the time. So I was paying all this debt. I was paying the mortgage. So in my eyes, I'd worked really hard to keep the house. So I thought I was entitled to the house, which in the end, they didn't want the house. So it was kind of like an, an easy battle, really. But yeah, the rest of the debt I kind of had to take on. We did discuss it. I did say that I wasn't, I was not wanting to pay for debt that's not mine. And that was just part of the, if you have the house, you have that debt. That was something that I just had to kind of accept. And to be honest, I just wanted to be out of the relationship, just be over with it. So that was something that I decided financially to take on. And I'd say it did paid off because a lot of the items I was able to sell and pay down that debt. And then, yeah, when I got my money and finances in order, I slowly pay all those things down. And so once everything, I suppose, from that previous relationship had settled, was that when you realized, okay, I've got this debt and I need to work to pay this off. And that's when you started that upskilling journey to uh, increase your income. Yeah. I, I didn't really even think, like it kind of naturally happened. Like I never really thought about it. I only towards the end really started to hone in on this upskilling thing that was new to me when I was actually in one of my mining jobs, listening to uh, the My Millennial podcast. And I heard it was mentioned there and I thought that's a smart thing to do. So that's kind of when I like chased it really hard and it, it's paid off. But before that, uh, I was yeah, a chef and I was studying aviation on the side. So I kind of wanted to get a job while I was studying aviation that was in that field. So I was looking and I was, I was overcooking and I was over like post COVID, all these restrictions so I got a job at the airport doing security in aviation, which I thought I'm still surrounded by my passion for aviation and it, it actually paid really well. So that job gave me base around 80, 85,000. If I would did overtime, that could easily go to 90, $100,000. And that was, it was good. I was finally getting money that I could see was paying things off and I was actually keeping some of it and enjoying some of it. So that kind of just lit a flame for me to just go, like, chase the next thing. Within that position, there wasn't much room for growth. So I kind of, within a year and a bit, I'd kind of reached as high as I was going to get money-wise. And, of course, being at the airport, I'm seeing all these FIFO workers come through and you hear the conversation that people are having about their tax return or you start talking to someone about their income and where they go or what they do. And there's cleaners saying that they're on like a hundred thousand dollars a year. So I'm thinking, wow, you, you're like, you get that much for like cleaning. And then just everything receptionists, people like an admin or HR earning over a hundred thousand dollars just because they do FIFO. And that was something that really stuck with me. And I, I had thought about doing FIFO years ago, but I thought in a relationship, it's never going to work. And it's something that really was scary to me. But I thought, I need to really do something different, need to change something, otherwise I'm going to lose everything. And so, yeah, I started applying for jobs and landed my first FIFO job, and that was at 110000 And once I was in there, I realized that mining, they will invest a lot of money into their, into their workers. So 
once I learned that you could join this program or you could do this and they will pay for it, they'll get you these tickets and qualifications. Yeah, I was, I guess I became really driven towards education and training, like, because it is expensive. So I kind of just jumped from one position to the next position, the next job that was offering better, like better perks, uh, better awards or better training. And that's kind of landed me at where I'm at now. The company that I'm with pay for national qualifications and all your training, very big income. My base is all, with all my perks and added things. I'm on 145000 a year now. That's not including bonuses. Amazing. So cool. And just so cool to hear the progression from where you were and, and seemingly probably felt a little bit lost as to what direction you should be taking and going in in order to help yourself feel good and and be in a position also financially where you feel confident and, and secure as well. So awesome to hear about that upskilling. Has your like did your aviation studies contribute to the role you're in now, or is that something separate? Uh, it's completely separate. I think my aviation career has come to an end. <laughs> oh well, it doesn't sound like it worked out too badly for you anyway. No, definitely. That's awesome. Okay, cool. And so you started this upskilling journey and were kind of driven by those those benefits that you saw. And how did you, like, as you started earning more, were you keeping that awareness of like, okay, I need to be aware of the fact that I'm having this much more money come into my bank account. What am I doing with it? Or did you, yeah. how did you manage that? So that's when I was at, got my first mining job at 110 and I got my first paycheck. I went, my partner does all of like my my accounts because he likes to he likes his Excel spreadsheets and stuff like that. Which, to be honest, it makes everything so much easier for me. Um, once we had allocated all of the money to accounts that or bills that I needed to pay, it was kind of like a shock factor of you actually have a lot of money left over. So we were then you know building up a bills account so that if I you know something was to happen, I have money for the next three months for bills or an emergency fund. So yeah, once we had done all that and I upskilled to the next position that was then paying more, I stayed at that base of where, you know, things were getting paid and I uh, was still saving a little bit. But then any extras that I had was being put away into a savings account for a deposit on a house or, you know, or anything I needed to buy. But now in this this current position, I'm still living as if I was on 110,000 and that that extra is all savings and holidays or uh, deposits or an investment. And do you still feel like you're able to live that lifestyle that you want even by living like you're on 110 instead of 145? I'm enjoying enjoying life. It's not, I must, I don't say I go out partying and spending all my money. I think those days for me are over, but I'm definitely enjoying the money that I have. I don't feel restricted at all. And I think that really comes with just taking a step back and thinking, do you need, do you really need that item? I would be the first to put my hand up and say, I just normally want to just go buy something. Like I would have, I would have bought the PlayStation 5 like a couple of weeks ago. But if I didn't really have people around me saying, do you, do you need that? Like, do you really need to spend $600 on something? Then, you know, yeah, so I think it's, I know I really enjoy the little things like time, my family and partner. Good to have those people around you that keep you accountable. Would you say that you're naturally 
a spender or a saver? I'm definitely a spender. Mm-hmm. Like if I had the opportunity, if I won the lotto, that money would be gone overnight. So it's a constant struggle thinking, do I, do I actually need this or is it just something that I want? Now, most of the time I buy something and I hold on to it for a month or so and then you know it goes into storage and then I put it on marketplace. I don't stick with things that I purchase for a long time, really. Right. So is there a certain way you, you think about your purchases now? Like if you're trying to make a purchasing decision, what are some of the things you think about before deciding whether it's worth buying or not? If it's, if it's something big and, I, and I'm still thinking about it a couple of weeks later, it's probably something that I would like. But if it's something for work or something that I actually need, I'll probably have the funds already for it. And yeah, I will, you know, that's something education or like work is something that I'll invest money into before I invest money into like outside of, you know, like home stuff or buying an expensive item. But if it is something that's expensive, um, something that my partner got me into is really saving the money for it. And he did say to me before, save double of what you want to spend. And then by the time it comes that you have that money, you probably don't want to spend it because half of your savings is then going to go to that item. Mm. And I did think about that and I did that with my, my MacBook. And when I bought my MacBook, it was it did hurt to see half of your money go. So that is, that is a big, a good thing for people, I reckon, yeah, to save double of what you want to spend and it will hurt to see it go. <laughs> it is funny how that seems to be the case, like, buying something on Afterpay is almost feels easier and more satisfying than buying something you've saved up for. And maybe it's because you have a more emotional connection to the money or something, but I definitely agree with that. I find if I'm spending money on something, if I'm spending someone else's money technically or debt, then it's so much easier to just, all right, see ya. But if it's my money, you're like, all right, this needs to be the most important decision of my life before I choose what I'm going to spend it on. I think, especially with things like with Afterpay and the I don't know, the recent invention of girl math is <laughs> it is pretty much a sale. Like mm. when you're buying a big, an expensive item on Afterpay, you can't believe the price that you're going to pay up front. So it does seem like a bargain. And I think probably where I got caught up with all my Afterpay spending was oh, the first payment's only like $300, but we won't think about it for the next three or four months until... <laughs> We start getting the bills that we missed the first payment and now we're paying a lot. Absolutely. Yeah, something I try and think about with debt in general, like Afterpay, is really visualizing the fact that it's not my money and that I'm using someone else's money to fund my own purchases. And when I think about it like that, like really try to force that fact into my head, it makes it harder to purchase because I feel that – I, I don't truly own the thing and have control over that thing. But if it's my money and I'm spending it, at least I know that that was 100% I own that. So whether or not it was a good or a bad purchasing decision, like I have control of that purchase more so than if I'm spending someone else's money, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And I think, yeah, when I'm spending someone else's money, there's no limits. Mm. Once I do it once and I get that sort of high, I kind of, will continue like mm. if I'm in a shopping center then it's game over that that afterpay is going to be maxed <laughs> out before I leave and it's such a bad way of viewing money and I don't know I think it's such an evil creation really all these, these afterpay I'd say it's it's worse than you know going to the bank and applying for a $10,000 loan so accessible isn't it that's the thing it's like 
Yeah. It's one of the most accessible things. You only need an email address and you're on board to spend whatever you want. And I'm the exact same. Like if I enter a mall or enter an online store, it's the floodgate. For me, it's like the floodgates open. If I make one purchase, I'm going to make 20. So I really need to be conscious about not making the one so I don't make the other ones following that. Well, Ian, what I love about your story is, and I don't think this was conscious on your part at all. I think it was actually happened quite naturally, but it seems as if you moved from being in this position that was extremely restricted and controlled uh, to one where you now have this all this freedom, but you started off getting out of that restriction, even once you're outside of that relationship, you started really small and you started with one step and then you built up from that and you naturally implemented these foundations of being like, okay, I just need an awareness and a tracking of where my money is going. Like what's coming in, what's going out, how many Spotify accounts have I set up? Like just literally understanding that in itself is already a huge step for someone that maybe didn't before feel in total control of their money. And then naturally you started to pay off these debts and realize, oh, actually I could be earning more and doing something that maybe makes me happier in different ways or it gives me access to a lifestyle that I'm wanting while feeling in control of my money. And so you naturally upskilled and started to grow within that role and then began optimizing that money through optimizing your income even more. And that kind of journey from foundations to optimization with money is something that is a good step-by-step process, but typically a lot of people can feel like you need to do that all in one time. Like you need to sort out your emergency fund and and track your money and start investing and start upskilling and, and increasing your income all in the like the period of a year or something when really it's probably more so just about taking the first step and then moving on to the next one after that. Yeah, that's it's interesting. Yeah, that you've picked that up because I would even say with my my house that I, that we built together is that that's currently being rented out. And that's something that years ago, I thought I could never have a stranger renting out my house. That's so crazy. And I, I did start small with that. I got a, a house made in to just on flatmates, got someone in to rent out the master bedroom while I was there. And then, yeah, from that, I guess, progressed to renting the whole house out through real estate. So I think, yeah, naturally it is probably probably beneficial and better for you to yeah, start small, I guess, mm. and progress your way. Mm. Yeah, you've done amazingly. And I think that's probably one of the most empowering parts of, of your story is just the fact that hopefully people who are listening who may find themselves in an environment where their money is being controlled in some way or, or they feel like they don't have that full freedom with their with their own income due to whatever restrictions, they're able to start the journey to financial freedom through just one small, simple step. And I know it becomes a bit of a cliche, but it really is important to not put the pressure on yourself to get everything done in, like I said, a year, six months, because sometimes it doesn't, it isn't just a short journey. It does take time and, and you want to give yourself some grace and some empathy, I think as well, to be able to achieve things realistically. And yeah, I think you've just done such an incredible job of that. So Congratulations, really, for getting to the space where, where you are in now. I think it's such a massive achievement and seems like you're now in a place where you can feel uh, the freedom that's come with all of your hard work. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I'll just say celebrate your, your wins, even if they're small. Paying off your electricity bill, that was $300 or just, yeah, 
if you're in if you're in debt, celebrate your wins because any any bill that you close, you're closer to financial freedom. Mm, absolutely. Is there any final things you'd say in addition to that to people who might be feeling like they're in an environment where they don't have that full security and control over their finances? What is something you maybe wish someone had told you? Just to be honest and open with yourself. And if you are really struggling, going to a company that's going to give you the money quick, that's, that's not always the best solution. And think of these things long-term. Some debt consolidation companies will probably stick with you for a very long time. And it's probably going to surpass the time frame it would have taken you to do it by yourself. Um, and if you need to lean on someone else, open up to someone you trust, a friend or a close family member, and let them know that this is something that you're struggling with, that you have this debt that you can't get rid of. And they might be able to help Like if it's your car is too expensive or you need to get rid of that. They might have a car or something to loan you. And I, I always say borrowing, borrowing money from friends or family, it's probably better than borrowing money from a high interest lender or these other companies that kind of target people that are down on their luck and mm. are really stressed and need this instant this instant loan. So yeah, I'd say speak to family and friends first before you really make these big decisions that could actually put you in a worse position later on down the track. Yeah, just be open and honest with where you're at because sometimes it's not pretty and it, mm. it does not look good, but it's better to be open and honest about where you're at so that people can actually help you and you can figure out where you need to be super important message and thank you for being open and honest about your story as well I know it's not easy to jump on things like this and and vulnerably talk about your experiences but the amount of people I'm sure you would have helped through this episode uh, will appreciate it and yeah definitely just appreciate your time so thank you so much Ian for jumping on an episode thank you We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities, and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. 